And yet again, it is what's involved. It's so good to have you along with us. Now, traditionally on, on what's involved, I like chatting to people and we do a lot of business focused stuff. And every now and again, I just sort of go off the path because, you know, why not? And I just talk to people that I find fascinating. I talk to people that got, have got stories, that have got great stories. And now is one such occasion because who am I talking to right now? I am talking to Terry Angelos. Uh, she is the author of a book called White Trash, My Year as a High-Class Call Girl. Cool and i got to tell you, first and foremost, let me say welcome, Terry. It's nice to have you along with us. Good morning, David. Thank you so much for having me. An absolute pleasure. Now, listen, to write a book like this, first and foremost, hats off to you. You know, um, and I got to tell you, when I when when the book came across my desk, I, I first looked at it and I thought, oh, oh, I don't know, do I want to start? Okay, maybe I want to read it. Maybe there's some really juicy bits in there, you know. <clears throat> and I picked the book up and I found that I got sucked into this book from the very very beginning. And I thought, this is such a great story, and and it's it's a typical hero's journey, in the sense that. You know, you, you started out, you made decisions, you ended up at rock bottom, and then what happened afterwards? It's absolutely fascinating. So good to have you with us, Terry. Let's start off um, as I normally do. I want to find out a little bit about who Terry Angelos is. So, so and this is, this is part of what you're going to be talking about now is in the book, and you write so, so well. It, your, your writing is so emotive. Um, you took me back to... Uh, the smell of the first rain and a thunderstorm in uh, mm -hmm. in your days. It was called in those days when I was there, it was just changed, was called initially Rhodesia, then Zimbabwe. So tell me about Terry. David, Terry is a currently a 52-year-old woman with, like you say, a lot of life and stories behind her. And this particular book focuses on, on one, one year and the build-up to that and the resolution of it, um, and as you describe it, is it is the story of a heroine, not a heroine addict, but a heroine. And um, I'm, I'm an artist, I'm a visual artist, and um, I am uh, a mother, I have a family, but I'm, I'm always driven by curiosity. I think that's kind of always been a keystone in my life. And um, so when approaching writing this book, Yes, the hook is my year as a high-class call girl, and that, I think, creates the intrigue. But the journey is so much more than that. And like you say, it takes you into places and takes you just along this incredible journey from my childhood all the way through to kind of a year where things fell apart in London. And I think being an artist, I've approached the book very much with an artist's eye. So wanting to make the story as visually and emotionally and um, appealing as possible so that you are really pulled into that world. Okay, but now, so, so in the book, and you talk about this, because I want to talk a little bit about that, about your childhood and a little bit about how you grew up. Share that with me. Uh, David, you know, I always thought, like I suppose many of us do, like, that we had a normal childhood because we don't have anything to compare it to. And so... My childhood had this kind of strange 
uh, paradox of, of being raised in a bubble of safety that was actually quite idyllic in a lot of ways and yet with the backdrop of war. And so I think our parents and the families around us were trying their best to create some kind of normalcy for childhood. But in actual fact, there was a lot of things that was, were very abnormal. And I think being in a kind of a war scenario creates, I think, a lot of hypervigilance. And so I think that's why some of my memories are so vivid um, because we lived with this kind of hypervigilance all the time. And I think it's something that many South Africans can relate to as well, living with, with hypervigilance. Mm, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I'm guilty of that. I have been guilty of that myself. Um, you know, and I also ended up in, in the military. One of the things, though, in the beginning of the book, Terry, that really, it just, it sort of just really caught me is the story of you going out uh, to the, 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 the lady's house just behind you and eating sadza. Mm. Now, unless you know, and unless you are a Rhodesian or a Zimbabwean and you've been there, you have no idea what sadza is, because let me tell you, I love pop and gravy. Love it. Love it. Mm. Love it. Love it. But there's something different about it in Zimbabwe. It's just, it's wonderful. Now, now just that tiny little bit of the story that really tugged at my heartstrings because you were there mm. and um, th there was some specific words that you used about uh, the, the, the sadza eating experience and, and, you know, what should have been, so natural and so normal was actually almost shameful? Mm. Yeah, I actually start out the book saying that my first memory was a secret, sneaking off to um, Maggie's room at the bottom of the garden. And so the, the story actually uncovers a lot about um, racism and kind of social things that we were normalized for us socially. And so you get those contrasts. Um, between sort of sitting, you know, sitting in the cement room and all the smells, tastes, feels experienced through a child's eye who doesn't actually understand the social construct. Um, just There's just some sense in her that she shouldn't be telling anybody about this, that it needs to be a secret. Um, and I think the experience of eating sadza in the in the circumstance where it's cooked on the paraffin stove in you, you know it, it's it's different it's a different you know you have the taste of the smoke um, coming through the sadza and yeah so and this this deep connection with a woman who who was so attentive to me and so motherly while my own mother was distracted with you know my my newly born baby and. So, and just processing that as a child, not understanding, like I said, the social construct um, of the situation. Yeah. One of the things that I, I have to say this in compliment, John, um, you know, when you say that you're currently a visual artist, but you literally paint pictures with your words in this book. And it, it's very, it does, it transports you there. I mean, when we're going to get to London in just a little while, the, mm. the, the sort of harsh, gritty side of it. You, you paint those pictures. I mean, um, at one stage, well, I'm not going to get too much into it. Let's, let's do this. Let's do this. Yeah. <laughs> this is what's involved. My special guest is Terry Angelis, uh, author and her memoir. It's called White Trash, My Year as a High-Class Call Girl. When we get back, 
we will we'll discuss a little bit more on what led to going to London. This is what's involved back in a bit. And we're back with my special guest, Terry Angelus. So, Terry, like you said earlier, and, and, and I think most of us do experience this, um, you know, we think that the life we live, particularly as kids, is, is that's normal. That's what everybody mm-hmm. does. I mean, you know, I, I grew up with uh, an, an alcoholic father, and uh, he used to, when he, when he sort of drank too much, uh, got quite violent and aggressive. And yet my best friend, the same one I was telling you about who had the farm in, in, in Mateki, um, he had exactly the same situation. A, a very violent, abusive um, father, drank a lot. Him and I didn't know there was any difference. When we hung out together, you know, so oh, well, dad's getting trashed again. You know, it, it, it was normal. Nobody told mm-hmm. us it was abnormal. So now, how did you go through, and, and, and tell me a little bit about your school career and those sort of formative years, what happened there? Um, David, the, you know, the book is actually almost like um, like investigating a cold case because, because I didn't, I came from what I presumed was a normal family, but with the backdrop of war. So what I did was I looked for places where I, I and this is, an, if you ask yourself this question, you'll, you'll, you'll know something will come to mind. But if you ask yourself, where did everything shift? Where was there a profound change? Um, something that just changed my worldview? Or, and I actually traced that back to the time of independence and where we, we decided to immigrate to South Africa. And my parents were both educators. So, you know, in their, their fear of post-independence Zimbabwe was that, you know, like, like so many white people thought, you know, it's all just going to go downhill from here. Let's go to South Africa. And I think that's where I found myself just feeling like I wasn't coping. I wasn't keeping, I wasn't keeping, I wasn't keeping up. And I had come from a small town where I was kind of the superstar, where I was, you know, I describe it as being the queen of the antique. And here I was just in this huge, um, much more kind of modern in a lot of ways, society, the girls just seem more advanced than me and all my efforts to kind of build my identity around achievement were starting to crumble. Um, and I think being 11 turning 12, that's, that was a vulnerable age for me. And um, I think, you know, I kind of pinpoint that as one of the moments of unraveling. Now let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, now you've, you've, kind of gotten to the stage where, where, where you're older um, because it strikes me and I think you mentioned as well you, you, you were a bit of a rebel um, you were you weren't the most shy person in the room were you no not at all but I think what happened was I started to build my identity around getting attention and I think that's often what happens in you know the typical rebellious teenager is you know when being good and being, you know, top of the class is no longer working. I reached out for the next kind of thing that I thought, you know, I could kind of pin my identity on. And that was definitely being being a rebel and getting attention in that way. And it just kind of snowballed from from there. Now what led to the decision to to go overseas? You know, I was in my second year of I'd done a year of fine art and a year of drama and was still conflicted about where, what I really wanted um, to do. And I had a little summer fling 
um, with a young man, um, actually while my boyfriend was on a fishing trip with my father. And he was going to London and he just said, why don't you come? And I just thought, why not? I actually don't know what I'm doing. Um, I've got this yo-yo boyfriend. Um, Maritzburg is just too small for me. I need the big wide world. So, <laughs> so it was kind of this whim. And I, I don't know, I had this strange sense of destiny about it, funny enough, that um, I was being pulled to something that I would find something big in London. So I kind of went with this, this sense of ambition, the sense of destiny um, at all of 19 years old. Yeah, bright-eyed, starry-eyed. Then you end up in London. Because let's be very clear here. Um, you, didn't, you didn't start out on this journey and go, I think I'm going to go to London. I'm going to end up... Um, in this sort of sex industry, and I'm going to, like, my life is just about going to kill me. You didn't start mm. off like that. Nobody starts off like that, I don't believe. So you're, you arrive in London, and, and what happens then? I arrived in London with literally 80 pounds to my name and two days to find a job, and the phone number, and just remember these are not the days of cell phones, the phone number of a possible digs to crash at, um, and I called that number from a, from a call, uh, London call box at Victoria Station. Um, so I was under pressure and I, I thought the best job would be au pairing because that's food and accommodation. And I did it and being, you know, a very entitled, privileged white South African young lady, soon found myself being viewed as the help. And that just didn't go down too well with me. And um, I thought the children were absolute brats. And um, within two weeks, I was dismissed from my job and found myself in London. And I'd had, I'd had, I'd heard a story from a friend of my mother about her stessing in London. And she painted it as this picture of, you know, the ultimate glamour job in the 60s, serving, you know, serving cocktails to, you know, um, wealthy businessmen. And I thought, yeah, I can do that. I can do that. Um, with no trouble at all. And so when an advert for an hostess popped up, I was like, ah, oh, this is it. Let me go. And so that's kind of how I started it. I started it and um, I equated to the boiling frog syndrome, uh, you know, a combination of curiosity and already being quite a hedonistic kind of daring girl. Um, you know, once I put my foot across that, across that doorway and stepped down into that world i was i was very soon pulled into it this is this is amazing and i mean you write so honestly in the book um about how this all progresses and i don't want to give too much away because it's a fantastic book and you, you've got to read it um but it is it's amazing and the boiling frog analogy is absolutely right if you don't know what we're talking about um it's it's equated to if you sort of try and put a frog into a pot of boiling water. It's not going to like it. It's going to want to get out. But if you put it into cold water and slowly raise the temperature, it won't know then till it's boiling. So that's mm -hmm. essentially it. But it is. And and you know what? I've had um, some experience in the, in that industry. I was uh, uh, spent some time helping somebody out um, from a, a sort of, a, I guess, a consultancy management position because um, they had many businesses, but uh, mm -hmm. a couple of them were these uh, gentlemen's clubs. And wow. I, I, I've just seen so much that can happen there. And I've seen 
how these young girls get lured into it and how before they know it, they're in mm. boots and all and there's just no getting out because there's so much stuff that happens. Um, but now, you didn't stay working at that club for very long, did you? No. Um, in the book, I refer to it as grade one for hookers because it was very, in a lot of ways, very tame. And I think, you know, I always thought I went in with my wits about me, you know, fully understanding what I was doing. But looking back, there was definitely an element of grooming um, and kind of, you know, the beginning of being pulled into a world that you can get really, really very quickly sucked, sucked into. Um, so, so yeah, that didn't, that didn't last long because by that, at that point, I then met a girl and, you know, we, we became quite a dynamic couple together and we're very ambitious and, you know, sort of once we were in that world, you know, I, I think I definitely saw myself as being the one that was the exploiter, um, not the, not the exploited. And that comes from quite a different angle when you feel like you have the power, you're the one in control, you're deciding how far and what you'll do. Um, and so that was the start of that and kind of making choices based on having that ambition to, to exploit, um, to exploit men and their, what I viewed as their weakness. And you know what, it, it, and, and talking to you now, I mean, I've, I've chatted to some people as well in the past, and that, that is exactly what it is. And it's such a weird contradiction because the men who go to, 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 to these kind of places, you know, they're going there and they're going, well, I'm going to get X, Y, and Z, and I've got the money, I've got the power, I've got the control, and I sit there and laugh because they don't. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, if, if a lot of these men knew what the, what the, the ladies were thinking, um, they would not want to go there. I promise you. I don't know from, from your perspective, but um, it, becomes this, it becomes this thing, I think, and you can correct me because you've, you've been there where it is. It's, 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 it's slowly, 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 and more and more things become normalized, but also mm. there's money. And yep. it, it's not money that you have to be a rocket scientist to earn. And if you've got a personality, if you're attractive, and if you've got an IQ slightly above that of plant life, you can really do well for yourself. You can. And I think, um, you know, when I looked around, I didn't see a lot of girls like myself. Um, and it's funny, you know, the comment that I would get is people would find it surprising to meet me there because I was educated. I wasn't what they would have perceived as low class um, I could hold a good conversation, you know, and, and, and actually people might be surprised to hear that it's actually not all about sex. It's a lot of it is just about really there being to stroke a man's ego more than anything else. And, you know, I, I understood the, I understood the economy of that side of business. I understood that, you know, a businessman coming into London for two days, you know, wanting to let off some steam, wanting to have a good time. Doesn't he doesn't have the time to find a date and meet a woman and then worry if she's going to think, is he going to call her again? And he isn't going to call her again. And next time he visits, will he look up in the phone book? You know, I actually just understood the business side of it. I just understood how this all worked. It made sense to me. And so I think from that point of view, 
you know, I also found myself kind of also with an ambition about I'm going to make this work for me. Absolutely. And, and to a degree you did for a while, but we'll get into that. For in a while. A, we'll get into that in just a little bit. Um, my special guest, I'm chatting to Terry Angelos, author of White Trash, my year as a high class call girl. This is what's involved. We'll be back in just a bit. And we're back. What's involved? It is so good to have you with us. Uh, my special guest is Terry Angelos. So Terry, you went through the, to, to, to the one place and then you moved on. But Talk to me about meeting this mysterious gecko person. Yeah, he was one of those. I, I kind of um, refer to him as a rescuer. He was quite an interesting character. He was so slick and smooth. He was, he was from Texas. He was an art dealer, extremely wealthy, only ever wore Versace and all the top designers. And he just took a liking to Sandy and I and, um, and he, you know, he, he kind of, he kind of took us under his wing, but at the same time was very much a client. It was also a very strange, strange kind of relationship in that he was simultaneously trying to pull us out of this world and warning us about, you know, what, what lay ahead. And we were just, you know, young and thinking, you know, no harm can come to us as you do when you, you're 20 and um, while at the same time actually making full use of our core girl services. So um, he was a very interesting, interesting character. And, you know, we, we had a kind of sugar daddy type relationship with him. Oh, because I think there's, there's one part, uh, if I recall correctly, one part where uh, you guys wanted to go away somewhere, but without him. Yes. <laughs> We, you know, one of the one of the things that happens in that world is you learn to become a master manipulator, and um, that's certainly what happened to me. Um, and you know, you you're in this you're in this to make money and get what you can out of it. Um, you know, and in talking honestly about it, that's one of the things I had to face about myself is just how greedy and ex, ex, you know exploitive. And manipulative, I became in that in that world, and all the time thinking I have the power, I have the control. Um, you know, um, I've got this, I've got this all under control. I know what I'm doing. Um, meanwhile, swimming in very dangerous waters, um, you know, being oblivious to the actual dangers that that were possible doing what I was doing. And they are certainly. A lot of those, but now mm. at, this, at this time, Terry, did, did, was there any any sort of plan? And and did were you thinking, Shish, I need an exit strategy because I cannot do this forever? Uh, yes, David. I think you know my whole mindset going in there was, you know, I'm on a gap year. I've come here to you know make my way in life and um, have adventures, and you know being being, like I said, curious and daring, you know, I just kind of saw it as almost almost like I was not like a journalist or, or a voyeur, but someone kind of going into a world, like dipping into it, and I could just go out whenever I wanted. And that's how I viewed it for a long time, that I, this is not actually me. Um, and because there's so much role play and 
changing of personas and I describe it as shape-shifting, you do start to actually separate your kind of your soul, your inner part of your of your being from this persona. And I think that's that's how you actually end up kind of going deeper because you you numb out, you dissociate, you take on a persona, you act a role, and you kind of bury your own self. So I just saw it as something that I would do for a while, have a great adventure, pack up my suitcase, put it all in a box, and go home as if nothing had happened. But obviously, that's not how things, how things work. Now talk to me about, about that part of it, Terry. I mean, the, 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 the sort of slide and the, and the hitting the rock bottom, where in that, that year was, was, did you kind of go, uh-oh, hang on, things are not all sunshine and roses right now? Mm-hmm. Well, well, not to give away too much from the book itself, um, there definitely was a point where I think I could no longer separate, um, where, where I just, I couldn't say anymore, this is just a fun adventure um, and I can go home. The realization that this was me doing these things and me in this world, that this is what I had become was, you know, it was kind of the more than a wake-up call, it was devastating to actually kind of face that reality. And then to look forward and think, where will I be? You know, how is this going to impact my life, my future? You know, what if what when I want to get married? Who's going to want to marry me? What about a family? So looking, projecting where I was now onto my future. Um, that that was very that was really part of the rock bottom, and then obviously getting in, involved in more and more dangerous situations. That you know, um, there's one particular incident I write about that was very very. I mean, I nearly lost my life, and it was. I think that's really where it hit me the most, and I, I just couldn't. I lost. The get up and go I lost the will to live really because it just all came crashing down around me emotionally psychologically physically um you know I just really hit hit a very dark place where I couldn't see any way out oh and, and I must I'm gonna say again you know whilst reading the book you know I kept finding myself going all of this happened in a year <laughs> yes I was like, holy guacamole, that's, that's a lot. But now, surely at that time as well, now you're, now you're thinking, you know, that, that you need to get out, you need to come back to South Africa. Going through your mind must have been, well, how am I going to, because you said you were worried about if you wanted to get, you know, get married, have children. So you must have been thinking about the consequences now of arriving back in South Africa. What were you going to do? Um, well, fortunately, I actually, um, even before, I think, you know, my, my path to redemption started in London um, and actually finding, finding faith. And I, you know, I write about um, my, my relationship with God and the, the role that that had in my healing. And I think there's, there's so much religious cliche out there that, it, that alone was a difficult subject because I wanted to write about 
just starting over and just rebuilding my self-esteem, um, looking at myself in a different way, um, kind of facing those, those really ugly parts of me and, and just kind of putting myself back together. Um, that started to happen before I got home. And um, I think the process was one of hitting rock bottom. This is, this is the worst part of me. This is, you know, what I've done is diabolical. It's now part of me. I can't, I can't exclude that from my persona. To then build, re, the building back up again is then also the reverse of that. So, yes, I've done terrible things and I've made bad choices and I've, I've messed up, but that's not all of me. So rediscovering the good and reorientating myself. So it's kind of a paradox in a way because you have to go through the one to get to the other. Yeah, there's that old saying, if you're, if you're going through hell, keep going. Uh, <laughs> sooner or later, you, you, you're going to get the, to the end of it. Now, just before we go to a break, I just want to say that so, so you got back to South Africa. One of the things, though, that you did is you started this little house that you guys were in, and it was all young ladies of faith. Yes. And the question, and just the way even that you, that you wrote the accent there, um, the question that you, that, that you got asked I think was incredibly ironic. Talk to me just about that little bit. Yeah, it's funny how, um, you know, so now I was trying to do, literally trying to do the opposite of what I was doing before. And um, I mean, even even the day I decided to go to church, opening up my call girl wardrobe and trying to find something to wear to church. I mean, you know, I literally had to try and re kind of recalibrate my whole being um, and living. So I ended up in Rocky Street back in the day. So if you if you you want to reminisce about Hillbrow and Yeovil and all of those cases in Joburg, you'll enjoy those chapters immensely. Oh, um, but, you know, living living with girls who were all in the full-time um, ministry in some way, shape, or form, and, um, you know, people coming and going, and then, you know, our neighbors across the road came to the conclusion that this must be a brothel. Um, so, you know, no matter how much you're trying to live a good life, you can't have no control over how people actually view you. So, yeah, it was hugely ironic, and it's, it's always amused me to this day. Yeah, no, I, f I found that bit in the way you wrote it very, very amusing and sad. Let's be honest. Mm -hmm. um, this is what's involved. My special guest is Terry Angelos. Uh, she is the author of White Trash, My Year as a High-Class Call Girl. We'll be back in just a bit, wrapping it up with Terry. And we're back with uh, my special guest, Terry Angelos. So, Terry, you know, this, the book does, that does continue a bit, but what I wanted to talk about is, is you know, in the beginning, you said that you are now, um, you, you know, you're, you're, you're a fine artist and obviously a very good author, um, married, family, all of that. How long did it take you to decide, okay, I need to share my story. My story needs to be told. And were you at all worried about the kind of reception that you were going to get writing a story like this? Definitely. Um you know, I always knew I would write a book or tell my story in some shape or form. And I have told my story over the years. Uh, you know, I've never 
kept it um, too deeply hidden and, and certainly with people that I trust or people that I think it would help if they knew, you know, no matter how much you mess up, you can turn your life around kind of thing. Um, but I waited till my children were finished school and were young adults and I and me, my husband and my children were the deciding factor as to whether to go ahead or not. And they were all on board and hugely supportive. And I knew I had a good story to tell. And um, I also knew that no one's really written a memoir like this that is such an intersection of honesty about race, about social trauma, about that underworld um, and I, yeah, I just, I just, I don't know. It's hard to explain. It's like you, you, when you've got something inside of you that you know you need to get out. Um, that's just how I felt about the book. Um, that I knew I could tell a really unique and compelling story. Which you did. But now, going through the process of writing this book, um, mm. was it was it uh, cathartic in a sense, or was it sort of traumatic? I mean. Um, this is almost like, I don't know, I would guess this is a part of you. It's like birthing a part of you. Um, mm. So it wasn't that you sat down and went, okay, sunshine and roses, let's go. Talk to me about the process there. Yeah, I think I'd worked, I'd worked on the book over a period of about three years in kind of, you know, little scenario writing scenes, I suppose, as you would call it, and trying to figure out the, the structure. and you'd be surprised to know that actually writing about racism was, was very difficult because I didn't know how I wanted to be, I didn't want to sanitize it. I wanted it to be raw and real and paint the picture exactly was, as it was. And one of the themes you'll pick up in the book is that, you know, is an uncovering of a racist viewpoint through this cosmopolitan city of, of London. So that was very difficult because, you know, it's 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 such an explosive topic. So I had more concern about that. Um, you know, this is 32 years ago. I certainly, would, if I wasn't in a place of peace and acceptance about myself and um, and and healing, I wouldn't have been able to tackle those subjects. They would have been too traumatic. Um, but yeah, it was difficult. I think. Um, I think it uncovered a lot of shame. You know, and that shame is kind of comes in cycles and waves, and there were definitely waves of, of feelings of shame, at times feeling very insecure in my relationship with my husband, needing a lot of validation from him that I was still loved and lovable. Um, but I found it surprisingly liberating, um, you know, that this, this all exists now outside of myself. Um, it's out there. It's almost a sense of freedom, really. Um, which was unexpected in in the process. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a really nice kind of, you know, analogy in that sense of freedom. It's like, okay, it's done. But also behind this entire book that you've written, there's this sense of purpose, a sense of destiny, a sense of this is a journey and you had to go on this journey in order to become the person that mm. Terry is today. Mm. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think I think when you're curious and daring and arrogant and greedy and all of those things, those those things in your in your personality, if you allow them full reign, 
can take you down a very dark path. And that's what happened to me. And so I think it's it's also acknowledging that if we don't face some of the darker parts of our personality or we we allow them free reign, you know, we we can end up doing some really diabolical things. And, you know, we we sit in a country surrounded by stories of corruption and just understanding that, you know, those things happen compromise after compromise after compromise and allowing with, you know, whether it's your sense of greed or power to, to be what's in control, to not actually face those things about yourself and face the darkest parts. They can, yeah, come to the fore and take you down a bad road. No, oh, and listen, just the fact that you that you sat down and that you wrote this book, which is, to me, it's there's there's some some amusing parts, there's some scary parts, there's some really heart rending parts, but it is the journey, and it's the journey um, of of you, and you you've shared that, and this journey that you've shared can maybe be a roadmap for other people, you know. That's that's the part of it that I that I took from from this book, you know. It's going, it's a book that says, look, no matter how bad it is, there is always hope. Yes, definitely. And look, uh, you know, there's there's certainly many women who find themselves in circumstances where they are trading in some shape or form their sexuality for some kind of security, some kind of, you know, there's an economical trade that happens across all spheres of life. And mine was just an extreme overt version of that. Um, and yeah, just hoping that women will see that you can be brave and you can, you know, you can walk away. You can, you can mess up and make poor choices and do stupid things, but those things don't have to define who you are. They don't have to define your future. You know, so I hope people, you know, see a story at the end of enormous redemption and hope and courage and yeah, just the ability to reshape your life. Mm, well, I've got to say, I mean, I take my hat off to you because I know it took tremendous courage to to write this book and to say, okay, well, now it's out there. You know, I might not have mm. kept it a secret secret, but it's now really <laughs> out there. Um, it is think, really, really out there. But I think it's brilliant. And thank you. Terry, before I let you go, after a book like this, what are you busy with now? What's next for Terry Angelos? Well, everyone is demanding another book. So everyone that's read it, I've had incredible feedback. It's doing really, really well. It's really surprised everyone. My publisher calls it her little dark horse. And um, so I would, I've, I've just become obsessed with writing. I love it. I would like to write more. Um, I've got some ideas rolling around in my head. Um, but at the moment, I'm just really enjoying being able to share my story and have conversations like this. I, I'd hoped it would be a conversation starter. And so I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying this part of the journey as well. Wonderful stuff. Well, I'm putting my name down first on the list there when the new book comes out. Okay. Thank you so much, David. There we go. It wraps it up. Uh, Terry, thank you so much for taking the time out and having a chat to us. We really do appreciate it. And uh, I wish you all the best going forward. Excellent. Thank you, David. I've really enjoyed our discussion. There we go. That's Terry Angelos, author of White Trash, My Year as a High Class Call Girl, available in all good bookstores and online as well, I'm sure. Um, go out and get it. It is well worth the read. It's, it's, you know, when you see the title, you go, okay, yeah, this is going to be one of those. It's not, okay? It's not. So just go out, get the book. It's going to be one of the better reads that you've had. Um, 
and a great story there as well. As I said, it wraps it up for this edition of What's Involved. To each and every one of you, look after yourselves, take care, and thank you for listening.